right, we are back. Like you do obituaries in this part of the program, and I think we only mentioned in passing uh, the loss to the world of Edward Lawrence, assistant professor of meteorology at MIT, who was the father of chaos theory. Chaos theory has been described as the third great scientific revolution of the 20th century, along with relativity and quantum physics. This apparently all began when Lorentz was uh, using a computer with 12 different equations to try and predict the weather. At one point, trying to double-check the figures, he decided to take a shortcut. Rather than run the entire calculation again, he used figures that were rounded off to 0.506, for instance, instead of 0.506127. He was astonished to get back vastly different results, and to Lorenz, the implications were staggering. His observations were ignored for years, but in 1972... He presented his findings in a paper memorably described, Predictability. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? This tantalizing work soon enshrined the butterfly effect. This 1972 paper has been cited in more than 4,000 subsequent papers, making it one of the most referenced scientific studies in modern history. Since he operated in a field that was not eligible for the Nobel Prize, Lorenz never got one. But his theories have been used to predict everything from the size of snowflakes to box office receipts. Also passing in late was John Wheeler, best remembered for popularizing the term black hole. Wheeler got a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University when he was only 21 and joined the Princeton University faculty in 1938. Within a short time, he joined the wartime Manhattan Project and worked with Nobel Prize winner Niels Bohr. In 1939, the the father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer, suggested that a dead star of sufficient mass could collapse into a heap so dense that light could not even escape from it. At the center, space would be infinitely curved and matter infinitely dense. John Wheeler thought the notion was absurd, but after seeing mathematical models, he embraced the idea. At a conference in New York in 1967, Wheeler, seizing on a suggestion shattered from the audience, hit on the name Black Hole to dramatize this dire possibility. As recently as a couple decades ago, no one could point up to the sky and locate a single black hole definitively, and now we find them all over the place. You just had to learn how to look the right way. And we're pleased to see a couple weeks back, in conjunction with uh, Tax Day, an article in Parade, which is about as mainstream a publication, I think, as you can find in America, which pretty much dovetails with our talk a few months back with David K. Johnston, author of Free Lunch. The article asked the question, are you paying for corporate fat cats? And noted that when you pay your taxes, you're also footing the bill for American companies that are dodging billions of dollars in their taxes. Said Charles Cray of the Center for Corporate Policy, most major corporations have a tax department, not just to comply with the tax code, but also as a profit center. In 2004, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, the GAO, found that 61% of American corporations, including 39% of the large corporations, paid no corporate income taxes between 1996 and 2000. Last year, corporations shouldered a mere 14% of the U.S. total tax burden. Noted the article, as we talked about with uh, David K. Johnston, one strategy of corporations is to create shell companies in places like Bermuda, Gibraltar, and Caribbean islands in order to avoid federal taxes. These corporations set up an offshore division that has nothing more than a post office box, said Representative Richard E. Neal of Massachusetts. 
In one a notable recent case, KBR, a former Halliburton subsidiary and the largest Iraq war contractor, admitted to, quote, reducing tax obligations, unquote, through two Cayman Island divisions, which reportedly avoided hundreds of millions of dollars in Medicare and Social Security taxes. It is indeed the golden rule in action. Those who have the gold make the rules. Forbes magazine recently published a list of the world's richest men, which they like to do every so often. And uh, somewhat surprisingly, Bill Gates is no longer on the top spot. He's dropped to number three, which, you know, is still not bad. Warren Buffett moved up a bit, I think, from the second position to number one. But the surprising name, one that's not really a household name in America, is the guy at the number two position, Carlos Slim, described as a Mexican... uh, telecommunications uh, colossus, and uh, a guy we should know more about. So to learn about him, we've um, enlisted the help of our Mexican correspondent, Letty Chavez. Welcome back, Letty. Gracias. Who is this guy, Carlos Slim, and how did he get to be so doggone wealthy? Carlos Slim is the son of a Lebanese immigrant, and he made his money by buying companies cheap, turning them around, and then driving competitors out of the business. Because he's described kind of as as a bit of a monopolist, and I gather that's key to his success. Correct. So um, you you have family down there. When you make some phone calls to Mexico, is it is your experience that it that it costs a lot more than calling in the U.S.? It does cost a lot more. Usually, when my family calls, we um, let them know that we're going to call them right back, because we understand that it's a lot more expensive. The thing I can't that sort of startles me is that here's Mexico, this economy much much smaller than the United States. I don't think everyone in Mexico even has a phone, do they? I mean, what you know the stats on that? Only 50% of homes have phones. Wow. So you've got an economy much smaller than the U.S. with a much smaller number of telephones out there, and yet, yet Carlos Slim is making, making buku bucks. What's the deal? No competition? What, is it, what does he do? Carlos Slim doesn't have competition. For that reason, people have to pay higher fees. I imagine people try, though. I mean, if there's that much money to be made in Mexican telecommunications, somebody must be trying to crack the market. The U.S. long-distance company Avatel tried to do business in Mexico, but in order to connect to the Telmex network, it had to pay the company 70 cents out of every dollar. And I imagine that uh, that did not lead to op- profitable operations. It did not. Um, they, in fact, tried to sue Telmex for monopolistic practices, uh-huh. which was responded by Telmex with a arrest warrant to Avatel's top attorney. So, like as we so often see, it's a combination of, of monopolistic practices maintained by having friends in high places. Yes, in fact, um, Carlos Slim got his bid for Telmex from his friendship with Carlos Salinas. And through his connections, he has been able to keep uh, regulators off his back. And he's also been able to stop legislation that would stop monopolies in Mexico. So I guess if we're going to summarize how you could become a telecommunications uh, billionaire, the answer is have your friends in high political office, scare off the competition, buy their stuff at a fire sale price, and then have them make sure that uh, no competition's allowed. Does that sound like a fair summary? Well, it worked for Carlos. Yeah, I, I guess it did. All right, well, Letty, thanks for that. We'll have to keep an eye on what Mr. Slim is up to south of the border. And, uh, and uh, I don't know what people can do if they want to make a phone call down there. I guess you're just stuck. That's, that's how it works. 
we haven't figured any way around it. All right. Well, hopefully with Skype or something that like that, we may be able to break uh, his uh, chokehold on on uh, people in Mexico. All right, Letty. Thanks for the report. You're welcome. That was Letty Chavez, our Mexican correspondent and intern, a journalism student at CSUS. Uh, part of her research that really surprised me was that currently the peso is basically at ten and a half per U.S. dollar, and that I didn't know this. The minimum wage down in Mexico is 6.6 pesos per hour, which is 63 U.S. cents per hour. And you wonder why people want to come here to work. You know, and, and I know prices are really cheap, you know, south of the border, but, you know, 63 cents an hour, I'm sure, is nothing approaching a living wage even in Mexico. So, you know, something needs to be done down there as well politically. But, uh, you know, as usual, I, I'm, I'm not holding my breath. And final item, uh, looking at elections, it's been 40 years since uh, Joe McGinnis revealed how politicians were using advertising agencies to move the product just like you would soap. It was back in 1968 that McGinnis says the selling of the president, 1968, was a bestseller. Wrote McGinnis recently, in the age of television, wrote Nixon's image advisor Ray Price in an internal memo, the response is to the image, not to the man. It's not what's there that counts, it's what's projected. The selection of a president, he added, has to be an act of faith. This faith isn't achieved by reason, it's achieved by charisma, by a feeling of trust that can't be argued or reasoned. Television has totally reshaped the political landscape, and uh, currently we see things like uh, the term elitist being slapped onto Barack Obama. The LA Times noted that elitist these days seems to have become a disparaging synonym for nuanced and intelligent. For anyone, in fact, who doesn't reduce the world to moronic us-versus-them simplicity. Writing in, of all places, the Wall Street Journal, Frank Thomas said the country's real elite are rich and conservative, and the growing aversion to thoughtful analysis suits this new ruling class just fine. And the other buzzword they're, talk they're tossing about so much is electability. Who's more electable, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama? We're, uh, we're coming to conclude that those Wall Street elitists who would like to see John McCain elected have concluded that it's Barack Obama who's more electable, or at least that Hillary Clinton is more defeatable. And we want to close with the sad item that in spite of this age of YouTube, that uh, the Obama campaign spent months last fall searching for a high-quality video of his 2002 speech declaring that it would be a terrible mistake to invade Iraq. They were only able to locate a grainy 14-second snippet. At that point, Obama re-recorded the speech for a new campaign ad. I think we need, above all else, to not see this war in Iraq drag on another decade like the Vietnam War did, and particularly not see a war expanding across the border into Iran. I think for both those items, our best hope lies with Barack Obama. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Our intern is Letty Chavez. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Our guest will be Gordon Uncle John Javna of the Bathroom Readers Institute, whose latest book about music is sure to inform and entertain you. We'll also have a commentary, we hope, from uh, one of our local music experts, Rick Ely of KDVS. We'll see you then. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe me. 
the way it out your love it's a honky tonk parade how it out your love it's a melody played on a penny arcade it's a barnum and bailey world just as funny as it can be but it wouldn't be make believe if you believe in me 